Well, howdy y'all. Welcome back to episode number 49 of Once Upon a Time in Texas. I am your host, Michael Mitchell. And uh, yeah, we're approaching a year of doing this here podcast and getting close to 3,000 downloads of uh, the episodes that I've done. So thank you all for the support and the feedback and uh, just basically everything. This has been a lot of fun. It does take some time out of my busy life, but uh, I enjoy doing this and I get lots of good feedback from people. So uh, New Year's was a day or two ago. So Happy New Year to everybody. We're now in 2024, and uh, man, sakes alive, it's it's good to, you know, just be getting back to some normalness, I guess. Still heard some about COVID last year, and uh, you know, then interest rates were going up on houses, and prices of houses was going up, and <clears throat> anyway... 2024 is going to be a great year, y'all. You always have to start it out on a good note. And so New Year's was a day or two ago, and there are lots of posts and resolutions. Um, And one that I saw was a a realtor friend of mine here in Wichita Falls that said she had chosen a word that she was just going to focus on for the year. And... I did like that. I kind of like that word of the year thing. Um, You know, just a simple something, basically, to kind of keep us focused on whatever. So a few folks said things like, you know, family or, you know, intentional um, was kind of their word. Uh, You know, intentional meaning, you know, they wanted to be more intentional with their kids or with family or work or whatever. Just focus on it. And so, uh, you know, somebody put out there and said, you know, what, what is your word? And I, you know, I really thought about it for a while. It's just one of those things that, you know, makes you kind of stop and think for a minute. And I, I chose the sixth word in the Boy Scout Law, the 12 points of the Scout Law. So the sixth word in it, and that is kind. So I used to tell my students all the time, Kindness doesn't cost a thing and will pay you dividends. That was back when I was a teacher. And the whole idea was just basically like, you don't have to go like super out of your way or whatever. Just hold the door open for somebody. Um, you know, hold uh, hold their stuff while they take off their jacket, you know, from getting in out of the rain or you just whatever. Hold the elevator. Help somebody carry their groceries in, or at least up to their porch. You know, whatever, whatever the case may be, whatever that looks like to you. But we do need a little more kindness, I think, in our society. Since COVID, it seems like a, a lot of folks are just kind of angry, or or at a minimum, a little more rude or short-tempered. And I think we're we're coming out of that. I think people are kind of rounding the corner on that, and I don't think it's as bad as it was there for a while. But, uh, folks, I just say for 2024, let's choose kindness and let's do the little things that can make a big difference, whatever that may be to you and yours. So, uh, on episode 48, we did a little digging into two folks, um, that were bad, that that didn't really do kindness, I guess, or I'm sorry, they weren't bad. 
Bass Reeves was a good guy, and Big Nose Kate. They weren't bad, but uh, kindness probably doesn't fit them, I guess. And so uh, those those two folks, Bass Reeves and Big Nose Kate, kind of floated onto my radar, and I just chose to learn a little more about them. And like I said, neither one of them were born in Texas, but they spent time here, and certainly Texas changed the trajectory of their life. And this week is really no different. So we're going to look at two more outlaws that uh, I believe both of them were born here. Or at least spent, one was born here, I know. The other one spent the majority of their life here. So before we head out on this uh, wild and woolly outlaw episode, I want to thank our sponsors, of course, as I always do. That is me and Victory Home Loans. I know there are tons of people moving to and in Texas and Oklahoma, and I know a lot of y'all do too. So let me help them out. Send them over my way to themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. Like I've told you all before, I'm an independent mortgage loan originator working with Victory Home Loans to help people get into homes of their own because most of us don't have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars laying around. Uh, of course, somebody, I think, in Michigan or Minnesota does now. They won the Powerball. I went out and bought a Powerball ticket and got up this morning and checked it and told my wife, well, we have to go to work today. <laughs> so, um, if you're not that person that is now independently wealthy, give me a call if you want to buy a home. I make that process faster, cheaper, and easier. So, yeah. If you're moving to Texas or Oklahoma, head on over to themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. Let me help you out or help out those friends. Remember when you work with me, I sell dreams, not mortgages. So there you go. All right. So I told you all last week about Christmas and I was speaking with my uncles about the the show on Bass Reeves, Lawmen Bass Reeves. Um, well, I'm on episode seven of eight of that uh, Bass Reeves um, miniseries, I guess, whatever they call them now, show. And it's a pretty interesting story. And uh, man, has interest in this guy really exploded. My mother even gave me a magazine called Cowboys and Indians um, where his story was featured and there is a little more info on him. He had an interesting life, which I shared last week, but one thing I did learn, uh, you know, from the article in this magazine that was not mentioned in last week's podcast was another Texas connection. And so here's what it says in, in the magazine and this, so the guy that was writing the article, or I'm sorry, yeah, the guy that was writing the article. Um, well, okay, first off, let me back up. The guy that plays Bass Reeves, his name is... Uh, oh, shoot. I just lost it. Oh, my gosh. Y'all hang on with me. Oh, David Oyelowo. O-Y-E-L-O-W-O. Anyway, he is a British-born prince 
of the Yoruba people of Nigeria. And apparently he didn't like that, so he went into uh, to showbiz and doing pretty good at it. I thought that was interesting. So the guy that plays Bass Reeves is actually British royalty. So anyway, um, the guy that's, you know, writing about Bass Reeves in this article gets contacted by the Houston um, Police Department Museum and said that he enjoyed reading about Reeves, but he was surprised he left out the Houston story. And so here is the Houston story. And it, it goes back to a murder case from 1897. And so from 1893 to 1897, Reeves worked for the Eastern District of the Texas Federal Court in Paris, Texas. We talked about that briefly. Houston officials needed help investigating a murder that had taken place um, in 1896. The U.S., I'm sorry, and in 1896, the U.S. Marshal in Paris sent Bass Reeves to Houston to work undercover. So Bass assumes a fake identity as a fugitive on the run and befriended the suspect in the murder case. And for three months, Bass travels with the suspect from Houston to the Indian Territory, then to Dallas and Shreveport, Louisiana, then to Marshall, Texas, and eventually back to Houston. Reeves was able to get a confession during his travels with the suspect and testified to the man's guilt at his murder trial. Subsequently, the man was convicted for the crime and Bass had solved yet another crime in his long career. So I just think that's really interesting. And there's also some uh, question whether Bass Reeves is really... Um, where the guy got the idea behind the Lone Ranger of radio and television fame. So it can't be really proved, but inspiration for the fictional character is really, they think, based on Bass Reeves. So, yeah. That's kind of interesting, don't you think? So, anyway. <laughs> so... There you go. That's what I learned from the article. So let's check out another outlaw that Bass Reeves actually caught. This guy has not come up in the little uh, the show yet, and I don't know if he will or not, but this time the guy was born in Texas and pretty much ran wild, at least for a couple of years anyway, in Indian Territory. It's a guy by the name of Crawford Goldsby, and he was also known by the alias Cherokee Bill. So I did a quick Wikipedia search and uh, tells us Goldsby was born in 1876 in San Angelo, Texas, where I actually started my professional Boy Scouting career. Actually, not far from where he was born, um, literally two blocks. So Goldsby is born to Sergeant George and Ellen Goldsby on February 8, 1876 at Fort Concho in San Angelo, Texas. His mother, Ellen, was a Cherokee freed woman of mixed African, Native, and white ancestry. So during 1878, when Crawford Goldsby was about two years old, some serious trouble begins to occur in San Angelo between the black soldiers and then cowboys and hunters in the area. 
The incident that led to the largest confrontation took place at Morris's saloon. Of course, it was always a saloon where a group of cowboys and hunters ripped the chevrons from the sleeves of a Company D sergeant and the stripes from his pants, which was a pretty big deal, apparently. The soldier returned to the post and enlisted the aid of fellow soldiers who armed themselves with carbines and returned to the saloon. Gunfight breaks out, resulting in one hunter being killed, two others wounded, and then one private was killed and another wounded, which is a big deal for the Army. So Texas Ranger Captain G.W. Arrington, along with a party of other Texas Rangers, go to the post, Fort Concho, in an attempt to arrest George Goldsby, Crawford's dad, charging that he was responsible for arming the soldiers. Colonel Benjamin Grierson, who was the post commander, challenged the authority of the Rangers on a federal fort Goldsby apparently knew that the Army could not or probably would not protect him away from Fort Concho, so he goes AWOL. He escapes from Texas into Indian Territory. Um, Sometime after being abandoned at Fort Concho, Ellen Beck Goldsby moves with her family to Fort Gibson, now in Oklahoma, but then Indian Territory. Um... Why, we don't know. I'm assuming she went up there to be close to her husband, who was on the run. So, um, so she moves to Fort Gibson, and then she leaves her son Crawford Goldsby, Goldsby in the care of an elderly black lady known as Auntie Amanda Foster. Foster cares for him until he's about seven years old, and then Crawford was sent to the Indian school at Cherokee, Kansas. And then at the age of 12, he returns home to Fort Gibson. So it it says she goes to Fort Gibson. I don't know. Can't quite put all the pieces together. But anyway, he gets sent off for some education in Kansas and he returns home to Fort Gibson. Upon returning back to Fort Gibson in uh, Indian Territory, Crawford Goldsby learns that his mother has remarried And then it says, after departing Fort Apache on June 27, 1889, Ellen married William Lynch in Kansas City, Missouri, before proceeding to Fort Gibson. So apparently she had left and gone to Fort Apache. I don't know. Anyway, so Lynch, born in Waynesville, Ohio, was a private in K Troop 9th Cavalry. He had served during an earlier enlistment with H Troop 10th Cavalry. And his mom was the authenticated laundress of the 10th Cavalry D Troop and stayed with the unit, which gave her rations, transportation, and quarters when she needed it. She transferred to Fort Davis, Texas, and then on out to Fort Grant, Arizona. Um, She was also with the unit at Fort Apache, Arizona. So Crawford Goldsby and William Lynch, his stepfather, did not get along. Crawford began to associate with unsavory characters, drank liquor, and pretty much rebel against authority. By the time he was 15, Goldsby had moved in with his sister and her husband, Mose Brown, near Nowata, Oklahoma. However, uh, Mose and his brother-in-law, now brother-in-law Crawford, did not get along well either, and Crawford didn't stay for long. So he saddles up and heads back to Fort Gibson, 
and he moves in with a man named Bud Buffington and began to work odd jobs. So this is where Goldsby's life kind of, his outlaw life, takes a little bit of a turn. It begins when he's about 18. He's at a dance in Fort Gibson. A guy named Jake Lewis and Crawford have a confrontation over a dispute that Lewis had with one of Goldsby's brothers. A few days later, Goldsby takes a six-shooter and shoots Lewis. Thinking Lewis is dead, Goldsby goes on the run, leaving Fort Gibson and heading for the Creek and Seminole Nations, where he meets up with outlaws Jim and Bill Cook, who were also of mixed Cherokee blood. So during the summer of 1894, the United States government purchases the rights to a strip of Cherokee land, the Cherokee Strip, and agrees to pay out $265.70, worth about $9,000 in today's money, to each person who has legal claim. Since Goldsby and the Cook brothers were Cherokee Nation citizens, they headed out to Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which was capital of the Cherokee Nation, to get their money. Because why not? So at this time, Goldsby is wanted for shooting Lewis, while Jim Cook, um, one of the guys he's thrown in with, is wanted on larceny charges. <clears throat> the men did not want to be seen by authorities, obviously, so they stopped at a hotel and restaurant run by an acquaintance by the name of Effie Crichtonden. They talk her into going to Tahlequah to get their money. On her way back, she's followed by Sheriff Ellis Rattlingord, who hoped to capture Goldsby and the Cook brothers. On June 17, 1894, Sheriff Rattlingord and his posse got into a gunfight with Goldsby and the Cook brothers. One of Gord's men, Deputy Sequoia Houston, was killed and Jim Cook is injured. The authorities fled, but later on, when Effie Crittenden was asked if Goldsby had been involved, she stated that it was not Goldsby, but was in fact a guy by the name of Cherokee Bill. After her statement, Crawford Goldsby got the nickname Cherokee Bill and became known as one of the most dangerous men in the territory. So she was trying to cover it up and gave the guy a nickname. So after this, <clears throat> the Cooks and Goldsby officially formed the Cook Gang and began to terrorize Oklahoma. Between August and October of 18... Apparently 1894-95, somewhere in there. Um, Goldsby and the Cooks go on this crime spree. They're robbing banks, stagecoaches, and stores, and mercilessly killing those who stand in their way. During this time, Goldsby's hair, I don't know why this is really important, but Goldsby's hair starts falling out due to an illness he inherited from his grandfather, and left him with so little hair on his head, he decided to start shaving his head. So in November 1894, the gang is robbing a general store, and Goldsby shoots a guy by the name of Ernest Melton, who just happened to be coming into the store during the robbery. Talk about right time at the wrong place. And because of this Melton murder incident, the authorities step up their pursuit for Goldsby and the Cook Gang. With the pressure on, the gang split up and most of the men were captured or killed, but Goldsby managed to escape when the authorities offered a $1,300 reward, which was about 
$46,000 today, uh, some of his acquaintances come forward and uh, agree to help. That's a lot of money. So on January 31st, 1895, Goldsby is captured by Ike Rogers and Clint Scales of Nowata, Oklahoma, and taken to Fort Smith, Arkansas to await his trial. On April 13th, 1895, he was sentenced to death after being tried and convicted for the murder of Ernest Melton. However, his lawyer manages to postpone the execution date. So this is where I get a little confused, I guess, because this says he was captured by Ike Rogers and Clint Scales, but I've also found some stuff that said he was captured by Bass Reeves. <clears throat> That's where I got turned on to him, I guess. Anyway, we'll go ahead and move forward. He was born in Texas anyway, and he was an outlaw. So in June 1895, a pistol is discovered in a bucket at the Fort Smith jail. Goldsby claimed that a prisoner trustee named Ben Howell had brought the gun in and then had run away a few days later. In the meantime, Goldsby had made a friend, uh, Sherman Van, who was a trustee at the jail. Sherman managed to sneak a six-gun into Goldsby, uh, Goldsby's cell, a uh, Colt revolver. On July 26, 1895, Goldsby attempts an, attempted a jailbreak. Uh, he jumped the night guards as they came to lock him in a cell. A guard named Lawrence Keating is shot in the stomach. As he's staggering away, Goldsby shoots him in the back, which is a big no-no, of course. Uh, other guards arrive and prevent Goldsby from escaping, but they're not able to enter the jail either because, I mean, dude has a gun. So then another prisoner, Henry Starr, convinces the guards to let him go in and get Goldsby out. And moments later, he comes back with Goldsby, who is unarmed. So the second trial lasted three days, resulting in a guilty verdict, and U.S. District Judge Isaac Parker, hanging Judge Parker, sentences Goldsby to be hanged on September 10, 1895. Uh, a stay was granted pending an appeal to the Supreme Court. On December 2nd, the Supreme Court affirms the decision of the hanging Judge Parker, and they set the execution date as March 17th, 1896. On the morning of March 17th, Goldsby awoke at 6 to have a smoke break. He ate a light breakfast sent from the hotel by his mother. At 9.20, his mother and Auntie Amanda Foster were admitted to his cell, and shortly afterwards came Father Pius, a Catholic priest, with whom he had been voluntarily meeting for the previous several days. So the hanging is scheduled for 11, but it was delayed until 2 so that his sister, Georgia, could also see him before he was hanged. She was scheduled to arrive at 1 p.m. on the eastbound train. So shortly after 2, while on the gallows, it was reported that Goldsby was asked if he, would, uh, if he had anything to say, and he replied, I came here to die, not make a speech. And then about 12 minutes later, Crawford, Cherokee, Bill Goldsby, the notorious outlaw in the Indian Territory, is dead. So, yeah, I came here to die, not make a speech. Interesting. The body's placed in a coffin. It's placed in a box and taken to the uh, Missouri Pacific Depot, placed aboard a train. Ellen and Georgia escort the body to Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, for interment in the Cherokee National Cemetery. 
And then on April 20th, 1897, Ike Robinson Rogers, who was reported to have been involved in the capture of Cherokee Bill, is shot and killed by Clarence Goldsby of Fort Gibson, Oklahoma. Obviously a relative of Crawford. So there you go. Born in Texas, probably should have stayed in Texas, but now he goes to Indian Territory and falls in with some rough dudes. So, uh, yeah, what do you do? Life on the run, I guess. So let's jump into another one. This is a guy that I just kind of ran across. This is an outlaw who was also a lawman. Uh, or a lawman, of course, in Texas, right? <laughs> kind of interesting. This guy's name is John Henry Selman. He was born in Madison County, Arkansas, and he was the son of Jeremiah Selman, and the Selman family moved to Grayson County, Texas in 1858 when John Selman's a young man. So after his father's death in 1861, Selman joins the 22nd Texas Cavalry and serves during the Civil War. On August or in August of 1865, Selman marries Edna uh, de Graffenreed. The couple have four children. He and his family eventually moved to Fort Griffin in Shackleford, Texas, which we've talked about Fort Griffin before, uh, which is not far from Throckmorton. So in 1877, Selman becomes the deputy inspector for hides working under fellow inspector and ex-Shackleford County Sheriff John Larn. Selman and Larn fought against rustlers and vigilante justice in the lawless area of the northwest Texas. The two were involved in several shootouts with bandits and outlaws during that period. Then, in June of 1878, vigilante shot Larn to death in an Albany, Texas jail cell. Sounds weird. Ex-sheriff in a jail cell? Yep. Larn had been arrested after six hides, which did not belong to him, had been found behind his house. Even though Selman was out of town at the time, he was implicated in the theft and found himself a wanted man and being hunted by the same vigilantes who were friends with several men who had previously been either arrested or killed by him. So a little bit of vigilante justice going on here. Selman goes into hiding during this time, as he was also facing charges stemming from his desertion from the Confederate Army. Selman goes to Mexico. However, the end of the war and resulting dis, uh, disillusion of the Confederacy rendered any prior charges null and void, and Selman is free to return to the United States. So then John Selman's wife dies in 1879 while giving birth to a stillborn son, and the other four children were placed in the custody of his wife's niece. Um, Selman, by this time, is living in Lincoln County, New Mexico. Now, if any of you guys have seen Young Guns or Young Guns 2, you know that in the late 1870s, early 1880s, Lincoln County, New Mexico is an interesting place to be because it's during the Lincoln County War. So John Selman organizes a band called Selman's Scouts, and they're known locally 
as the rustlers. The group was accused of numerous acts of rape and murder in the area. However, no charges are ever filed against him or anybody else in Selman Scouts. By 1880, the band had been driven out of Lincoln County and began operating in Jeff Davis County, Texas, which is way out in West Texas. Selman is captured shortly after by Texas Ranger Joe McKidrick and taken back to Shackleford County for trial. Selman escapes and flees again to Chihuahua, Mexico, where he hid out until around 1888. So eight years he's gone. And then he finds out his name has been cleared and all charges against him had been dropped. So while he was in Mexico, he sends for his children. The two youngest boys join their father, but the two oldest remained in Brown County, Texas. They never see their father again. So after all this happens, he moves to El Paso. And uh, August 23rd, 1893, he marries a lady named Romula Grenadine. And he began working as a constable and spent some time gambling. So constable, he's gone back into law enforcement. So now he's been in law enforcement twice and he's been on the run twice because why not? So that's 1893. In April 1894, Selman kills a former Texas Ranger by the name of Bass Outlaw. Interesting name for a Texas Ranger. So Bass Outlaw had recently been fired from the Texas Rangers due due to his drinking and the threats he had made against a judge. Selman encounters this inebriated Bass Outlaw and suggests that Outlaw needs to go sleep it off. Outlaw declines to go home, and the two instead decide to walk towards Tilly Howard's, which is a local brothel favored by Bass Outlaw. Outlaw then creates a disturbance at Howard's place, resulting in his fatal shooting of Texas Ranger Joe McKidrick. He also drew on Selman, who was shot and wounded twice in the thigh. Selman returned fire and killed Bass Outlaw. Selman was not arrested for the shooting, and it was ruled justified. So, El Paso policeman and Selman's son, John Jr., arrested the mistress of John Wesley Harden, a lady by the name of Beulah Morose, or the widow Morose, for brandishing a gun in public. John Wesley Harden confronted the younger Selman about it, and the two men had a verbal dispute. So, in accounts supported by members of Selman's family, if, y'all, if you guys don't remember who John Wesley Harden is, I did a podcast on him too. So, according to counts supported by members of Selman's family, Harden pistol-whipped young John Selman and threatened his life. After hearing about the argument, the elder Selman approaches Harden on the afternoon of August 19, 1895. The two exchanged angry words. That night, Harden went to the Acme Saloon and played dice. Shortly before midnight, the elder Selman walks into the saloon to confront Harden. Drawing his gun at the door, he walked up behind Harden. He fired, shooting Harden in the back of the head, supposedly as Harden went for his gun, killing him instantly. As Harden lay on the floor, Selman fired three more shots into him. Selman was arrested, 
Because remember, he's a constable. He's arrested, charged with murder, and stands trial. He testified that he realized that Harden had noticed him enter in the mirror and that Harden had gone for his gun. Selman swore he fired in self-defense, and a hang jury results in his release on bond pending a pretrial. That apparently never happens. So on the night of April 5th, 1896, Selman is killed in a shootout by U.S. Marshal George Scarborough. The two men were playing cards and got into an argument. It has been alleged that the argument was over Selman killing Scarborough's good friend, Bass Outlaw, on that same date two years earlier. However, this is really unlikely because um, Scarborough and Selman had been friends for years and Outlaw was, Bass Outlaw was pretty much disliked by the other Texas Rangers, so much so that he was buried with no mourners at all. So instead, it's more likely that Scarborough's testimony at the trial um, when he was tried for killing Selman was truthful. So John Jr. had fallen in love and eloped with a Mexican girl whose father and ambassador disapproved. When they were found, the father had the younger Selman jailed in Juarez, Mexico. On the night of his death, Selman Sr., who was drinking with Scarborough, said he wanted to talk privately. According to Scarborough, they exited to the alley where Selman asked him to help spring young John from jail across the border the next morning. They discussed a time to meet, and then Selman invited Scarborough back in to have a drink. So, uh, Scarborough declined, whereupon Selman exclaimed, You goddamn son of a bitch. I am going to kill you. Selman drew first, and Scarborough then shot him in self-defense. Selman died hours later. Sounds plausible. So, when it was found that Selman's gun was not at the scene, Scarborough was arrested for murder. Just before his trial, a thief, Cole Belmont, was arrested, and it was then discovered that he had Selman's gun. The thief said that he saw the shooting and stole the gun before the crowd arrived. Scarborough was acquitted and released. So, you know, John Henry Selman ends up being on the wrong side of the law several times, on the right side of the law several times, and then is kind of, when it comes to John Wesley Harden, on both the wrong and the right side of the law at the same time. I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> so, I'm telling you, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, the Old West is just filled with interesting characters. So there you have it. There's two more. Two interesting historical characters that were either born or spent the majority of their life in Texas. So what do y'all think? Let me know what other kind of weird or off-the-wall interesting Texas history you'd like to hear about. I want to thank our sponsors again, me and Victory Home Loans. Keep in mind, if you know someone moving to or in Texas or Oklahoma or really any of the 15 states that Victory Home Loans covers. Because even if I'm not licensed in those states, I have teammates that are licensed in those states, and we can help y'all out kind of pretty much all over the West. 
But send them my way, either way, send them my way to themichaelmitchell.com. And remember, I sell dreams, not mortgages. I love making people laugh and smile. And I really do love getting people into homes of their own. So, there you go. Thank y'all for tuning in to Once Upon a Time in Texas, episode number 49. We've got, uh, let's see, four more episodes till we hit the one-year mark. Help me out. Send me some stuff. Tell me what you want to hear. As always, remember the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great 2024.